When I was a kid, my dad worked in the Cravens building in downtown Oklahoma City. It was called Oklahoma City's first skyscraper. It was built in 1927, and it was a whopping 12 stories high. The block where that office building still resides is a beehive of activity. Business, retail, medical, restaurants, courthouses at the corner of North Robinson and Main. And if you stood on the sidewalk in front of Dad's building when I was a kid, you could just marvel at the vast variety of people who were walking by. Everything from vagrants to judges would walk by you. And for decades, there was one man who was a fixture on the sidewalk in front of the building where Dad worked. A bearded man wearing a bedsheet, sandals, and a sandwich board sign that had a hand-lettered message on the front and back. All it said was, the end is near. He was a shocking contrast to everything else that was going on around him. He was unkempt and ragged in the midst of wealth and power. He never said a word. He never asked for money. He was there in the rain, the winter, and the summer. I would go up sometimes with Dad to his office on Saturday, and very few people would be in downtown Oklahoma City, but there would be the man wearing a sandwich board. The end is near. I was fascinated. And so probably about the age of 11 or 12, one day, I said, Dad, what is this man all about? And Dad said, he wants people to get ready for eternity. I hope you're looking at your copy of God's Word at 1 Peter 4, verse 7, because the Apostle Paul, or Peter, is saying the exact same thing to us today. But he's saying more, because I want you to notice that he says, the end of all things is at hand, so, therefore, because of that, he gives imperatives. Now, remember, Peter is writing to a largely Gentile audience of believers. That's important. He's writing to Christians, converted men and women who live far from Jerusalem. They're undergoing horrific persecution under the rule of the Roman Emperor Nero. Suffering is the order of the day for these recipients, not only from civil governments, but even fellow citizens. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack what it means to say the end of all things is at hand, therefore... This is wise instruction that applies to every single believer. There's not one believer here today who can opt out and say, well, that really doesn't apply to me. It absolutely applies to you. And so let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit at this time. Our Father, we ask and we confess that we prefer the words and productions of men to your holy and perfect word. But we ask now that you would turn our thoughts and our attention away from that which is trivial and temporal, to that which is lasting and true. The psalmist said that he hungered and thirsted for your word. Give us that same passion right now to hear you speak through your word. By your Holy Spirit, correct our errors and teach us truth. Mature us through this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're looking at 1 Peter 4, 7, the apostle Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Now, what is meant by that? Since Peter just wrote, if you look a couple of verses above that in verse 5, Peter just wrote that the judge, meaning Jesus, is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so I want you to get inside the human author Peter's mind. 
He's thinking about the end of the age, the judgment. Not just the end of your life, but the end of all things. Now what I want to do this morning is is succinctly state and maybe clear up and correct your eschatology. Because I will hear believers say things that are profoundly wacky about eschatology. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you came here with those sorts of notions. And so I want to point out what are the four component parts of the end of all things. Look at your verse. It says there in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. I want you to think very carefully with me what goes into the end of all things. Four component parts. And then what Peter will tell us is in light of those things, how should we be living knowing that the end of all things is at hand? Well, those four component parts of the end of all things are simply these. First, the return of Christ in glory. Second, the resurrection of the body of everyone who's ever lived, joining them to the souls of the dead. Third, the final judgment. And fourth, the eternal state. Now, having stated those, let's unpack those a bit because I'm making the statement that this is orthodox eschatology. This is what is meant by the end of all things, these four component parts. First of all, by that we mean the return of Christ in gloria. You might be here today and be a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennial or a nonmillennial or probably you don't know what millennial you would be. All of these views would disagree as to the timing of the events on God's eschatological calendar. But there is no disagreement that Jesus will return. That is because of the overwhelming biblical evidence. Christ's return is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. I think that qualifies as saturation. The only New Testament books that don't mention the second coming of Christ are Galatians 2 and 3 John. Jesus spoke often about his return. Think, for example, his statement that he makes in John 14, delivered on that Thursday night before he went to the cross. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. The Apostle Paul calls this, the second coming of Jesus in Titus 2, the blessed hope of all Christians. He says in Philippians 3 that Christians eagerly are waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The return, sometimes called the second coming, sometimes called the second advent of Christ, returns to the as yet future return of Jesus to the earth at the end of age. This return will be visible and physical as he comes from heaven, riding on the clouds to bring final judgment and salvation. Listen to what Jesus says about his second coming. And I say this as a cautionary tale because I've known way too many Christians who get caught up in date setting. The date setting of the return of Jesus may be the largest fool's errand that a Christian can ever engage in. And if you have done that, for example, if you bought the book by Edgar Wisenant in 1981 or 82 entitled 82 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1982, you should be ashamed, but only a tiny bit less ashamed of the people who actually bought the sequel to that book <laughs> entitled 
83 reasons why Jesus will return in 1983. Listen to the words of Jesus, and the next time somebody tries to set a date, say, state this to them. Say, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 24, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Well, when we think of this first component part of the end of all things, and we say it's the return of Christ, listen to some of the other common nouns used in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Christ. One of those terms is the Greek term parousia, and that term simply means presence or arrival. It's the primary noun, if you're to go get your Greek interlinear, and look, it's the primary noun to refer to the second coming. But there are a few other terms used. In fact, there's a broad linguistic range used to speak of the second coming. There's the term appearing. And it's the Greek word from which we get our English word epiphany. Or there's the Greek word that's closely related to revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, which refers as well to Christ's second coming. But both of these terms, epiphany and apocalypsis, emphasize the visible nature of Jesus' return as opposed to something hidden from view or secret or merely Christ's spiritual presence among us. There's another way the New Testament speaks about the second coming, and it, it uses terms like this, the day, or qualifiers to more clearly designate it as Jesus' return. And so several times in the New Testament, the day of Christ or the day of the Lord is used. So what I would have you see is the return of Christ, the first component part of the end of all things, is visible and final, Jesus will visibly and publicly in a way that all people will see. We are told this in Matthew 24, Acts 1, Revelation 1. All people will see him coming in the clouds. So any notion that he'll come secretly or someone may have missed it is misguided because there will be no doubt about the return of Christ when he comes. It's at hand. The second thing that's the second part of the component that makes up the end of all things is then as Jesus comes, or shortly thereafter, the resurrection of the body of everyone who has ever lived, joining them to the souls of the departed dead who Jesus will bring with him. Now, this is not a sectarian view, the resurrection of the body. This has been the belief of all Christians Roman Catholic and Protestant for almost two millennia, as can be demonstrated by its inclusion in the Apostles' Creed. When you say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And so this second component part of the end of all things, first the return of Christ in glory, secondly the resurrection of the bodies of everyone who's ever lived, speaks of the physical body. Something will happen at the end of all things, to the physical bodies of Moses and Abraham and John Calvin and my mom. Those bodies will be raised, glorified, perfected, fit for eternity. Physical death, of course, was not an original part of God's creation. Physical death came into the created order when Adam fell into sin. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that he plunged the whole race into death. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, said there will be a, a line a mile long in heaven of men who want to come and punch Adam in the face for plunging the race into death. 
Death, of course, is the last enemy, the last enemy of God's people that will be destroyed. Having already been defeated through the resurrection of Christ, it will be destroyed on the last day when Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Man brought sin into the world, the first Adam, and death was conquered by a man, the second Adam. He brings life to his people, both new spiritual life in this age and the new physical life that our bodies will enjoy at the resurrection. A connection exists between Christ's bodily resurrection and ours. Paul says the very same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will do the same for our mortal bodies. There's a continuity between the resurrection of Jesus' body and ours. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits, the down payment, we're the harvest. His resurrection was the guarantee of our own resurrection. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to say in Romans 6 that we have already been raised with Christ in principle. We wait only for the experience of physical resurrection. But the resurrection of God's people into new, embodied, glorified life is as good as done. It's been secured by Christ's resurrection in glory. And since we will be united with Christ, as we are told in Romans 5, in a resurrection like his, our resurrection will be very similar. When we look at the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus, we see that there was a continuity and a discontinuity between what he was like before death and what he was like after death and resurrection. His body after resurrection was enough like his pre-resurrection body that Mary Magdalene recognized him when he appeared to her. But his post-resurrection body was also different enough from his pre-resurrection body that she didn't recognize him at first. The new bodies we'll receive at the resurrection will be forever guarded from death by the power of God. We'll be imperishable and all the weaknesses introduced by sin will be no more. When he returns, again, this is the second element of the end of all things. When he returns, Christ will take our souls Bring them with him, those souls that have been with God since our death, and he will join it to your glorified, raised, resurrected body. And that will be our state forever. Abraham, John Calvin, my mom, don't have their resurrected, glorified bodies right now. That's why theologians call the state they are in, the state you may be in, is the intermediate state. So put away any thoughts of the departed dead engaging in any physical bodies right now. They don't have a body right now. Their body's in the grave. And so whenever I hear people say, oh, dad is playing golf in heaven, mom is dancing, I'm thinking, you haven't read your Bible. Because mom and dad's bodies are in the grave. They will one day have their bodies. Christ will raise it up on the last day. But they are eagerly awaiting the resurrection of their body. A third element that goes into making up the end of all things. We said the first is the return of Christ in glory. The second is the resurrection of the bodies of all who have ever lived, joining them to the souls of the dead. The third element of the end of all things is the judgment, the final judgment. Peter's already spoken about that in this chapter. Jesus gives us the locus classicus in Matthew 25 where he speaks exhaustively. Anything you want to know, if you want to be delivered from speculation and know what the Bible actually teaches, read Matthew 25. 
Jesus goes into exhaustive detail there. And he speaks about what he will do as the judge on the last day. The final judgment refers to that judgment that will take place when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and the reward and the retribution that he'll bring with him. Everyone will receive their just reward, we're told frequently. Who will be the judge at the last judgment? Of course, the judge of all mankind will be the divine human mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter just called Jesus. Look above your text to verse 5. Peter just called Jesus him who is ready to judge. And again, we confess this every time we confess the Apostles' Creed, which speaks of the return of Jesus as his coming. And we say he's coming to judge the quick and the dead. Our Lord said, speaking of himself, that the Son of Man, the King, would sit on the throne of his glory and judge all nations. He said in John 5, the Father has given him the authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Who will be judged? The Bible teaches that at the final judgment, Jesus will, re, will judge the entire human race, the quick and the dead, every man. He tells the parable of the dragnet, where the wicked and the just are all gathered in by Jesus. Again, in Matthew 25, Jesus uses this language, that all the sheep and all the goats, the sheep, the elect, the chosen are on his right hand, the goats on his left are all the reprobates. Revelation 20, in case you're going to try to escape, Revelation 20 is clear on the issue where John says, I saw the dead, small and great, all, all standing before God. The books were opened, the dead were judged. And so what I would have you know about this third component part of the end of all things, it's the judgment. Billions of people will be gathered before the throne of the Son of God. All of these text that I just referenced are all in fundamental agreement to what Jesus said in John 5, who speaks of all people who are in their graves will be resurrected. Jesus says an hour is coming when all who are in their graves will rise. And of course, the most touching scene that filled with the most pathos is when Jesus at the last judgment makes his final separation. And that's done by his word of welcome to the sheep on the right. Come, you blessed of my father. Come, enter into the joy of your father. But to those on his left where he points in the opposite direction and says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. The fourth component of the end of all things is the eternal state. And I need to dig in for just a moment so that we can be very clear about our eschatology, trying to keep you from embarrassing yourself the next time you refer to it. The Bible uses the term heaven to refer to the abode of God now, although the term heaven is not used in Scripture to refer to the eternal state. What happens after the redeemed have resurrected bodies? What do they do? Where are they? But the term heaven is nonetheless an appropriate designation since the triune God will reside with redeemed mankind on the new earth, joined with the new heavens. So it's important to differentiate between the intermediate heaven, where the souls of believers go immediately after death, and the eternal or consummated heaven. 
This is a reference to the new heavens and the new earth, which are clearly taught in the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20 through 22. Anthony Hookham, and by the way, I would refer his book deeply. It's called The Bible in the Future. It was my textbook on eschatology and seminary. It cannot be beat on these things. Anthony Hookham, of course, he would have to be a Dutchman, who um, speaks of these things and teaches very well. The Bible in the Future. Hookham says, since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, and since where God dwells, there heaven is, we shall then continue to be in heaven while we're on the new earth. For heaven and earth, we are told, will no longer be separated as they are now, but they will be joined. They'll be one. So the eternal state in heaven and hell that begins at the end of all things. The Bible gives just a handful of details. Don't add to them. The Bible gives just a few details on what that state will like. Scripture says that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem will descend from God to the new earth, we're told in Revelation 21. And in this new creation, the most glorious aspect of all, we are told, is God will say the dwelling place of God is with man and he will live the, with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God so we will be with the Lord forever. Our existence in this eternal state will be markedly different from what we're used to now. We're told in Revelation 21, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The curse that came with sin will never hold sway ever again. You and I can hardly imagine a world without pain or sorrow. But that's what God promises in the eternal state, a reality beyond imagination. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 of this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Neither will our existence in the eternal state even be marred by bad memories of old earth. For God will do a hard drive swipe of all of your memories. Isaiah says in Isaiah 65, speaking of how God will swallow up all our distress, he says, behold, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor can they come to mind. All of those sadnesses and aspects of pain, because I've had some of you say, but what about my wayward child? Won't that haunt me and torment me all through eternity? No. All of those memories will be wiped off your hard drive. The eternal state will involve serving the Lord, we're told in Revelation 22. Seeing God face to face. Living in perfect health and holiness. When we come to 2 Peter 3, Peter will write that the new heaven and new earth will be the home of righteousness. Sin will not cast its shadow anywhere in that realm. From the beginning of creation, it's been God's plan to bring his redeemed ones to this place of completion and glory. No more sin, no more curse, no more death, no more goodbyes. All because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In the eternal state, God's perfect plan will be brought to glorious realization. And mankind will accomplish his chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now comes the therefore. That was just the setup. Therefore, look at your text in verse 7. Therefore, 
The, because the end of all things is at hand, therefore, Peter says, be serious. In many translations, this is rendered as sober, not foolish. This trait, Christian seriousness, not dourness or anger or grumpy countenance, but seriousness. This trait is a mark of Christian maturity. In 1 Timothy 3, when Paul is listing the qualifications for an elder, we're told that the elder must be sober-minded. Same word, serious. You see, the believer, when Peter writes and tells you to be serious, this means that the believer is to be even-keeled, not given to highs or lows. I know certain folks who they are either up here or they are down here. They never live in that notion of seriousness, even-keeled. This means the believer, if he's serious, is to be careful in his speech, well-disciplined. He's, if he's to be serious, he's not given to excesses, excesses in substance or emotions. To be serious means he has no time for drama or chaos. The same word that's used here to describe when Peter gives us an imperative to believers that they're to be serious, the exact same Greek word is used in Luke 8 of the Gadarene demoniac. This, by the way, is my second favorite text in Scripture, the first being the famous Mephibosheth text. But in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus finds the Gadarene demoniac, this man is filled with devils. A legion of demons infest him. He lives in a graveyard. He shrieks all night. He cuts himself. But we're told after Jesus heals him and delivers him, we are told these words. The people from the town side came out of town and they found the man from whom all the demons had departed. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. It's the same Greek word that's used here in our text for serious. This means he's been transformed socially, morally. He's been mentally reintegrated. He's a new creation. He is, to use an old, wonderful word, been turned into a prudent, serious man. We're coming up, Pastor Dodds, I was thankful that he reminded of this a moment ago. We're coming up on a time of nomination, of, of pray, prayerfully nominating and then training and then examining them, electing elders and deacons. Let me warn you and caution you and remind you. Do not choose unserious men to rule over you as elders and deacons. Don't choose unserious men who don't fit the biblical qualifications. Don't choose quick-tempered men. Self-willed men, substance-abusing men, choose serious, sober, steady men. The right criteria for leaders in Christ's church are not, are they witty? Are they bright? Are they entrepreneurial? Are they skilled in management? Are they attractive? Are they well-dressed? Are they successful in business? The real issue is this. Is this man serious about the kingdom of God? Has he been mastered by Christ? Is he holy in public and private? Is he upright and blameless? Is he steady, responsible, content, consistent, a follow-through man? Does he manage his household well? Does he exhibit the fruit of the Spirit that is self-control? For 23 years, we've been fighting to raise the bar for elders and deacons. And only choose men who are clearly qualified according to the Bible's qualifications. We dare not lower the bar. Look at our text. 
choose men who are serious. Seriousness equips you for the next imperative. Look at what Peter says afterwards. To pray. Peter doesn't think of prayer as an effort to stir you into a state of ecstasy, but rather prayer is to be sober, serious, direct, thoughtful communication with the sovereign Lord. Now notice that Peter says that the believer is to be watchful in his prayers. To be watchful is like living as a man in an enemy's country. It's like walking through the streets of a downtown on the dangerous side of town after dark. We are to remember that evil and temptation are on, are on every side. We contend daily with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remembering this, we must beware of spiritual drowsiness. We need to have our wits about us to be watchful in prayer. This means we have cultivated the habit of real business-like prayer. Going to God daily, seriously. Going to him in adoration and confession of sin. Of going to him pleading for help against temptation. Going to him thinking, thanking him for strength received. Going to him seriously, praying for grace to cast aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Constant watchfulness in prayer is the only wise strategy under such circumstances. And so therefore you must avoid dulling your spiritual sensibilities through overindulgence or overconcern for material things. Now it's interesting how often, and I've rarely if ever heard men preach on this, how often Jesus commanded his disciples to watch and pray. Watch and pray. To be watching for the the realities of the unseen world. For example, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 12. He instructs his disciples how to be watchful. He says, let your waist be girded, your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who are waiting for their master to return. When he returns from the wedding feast, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Jesus said his disciples are marked by this. They're watching. They're awake. They're ready to give their master a proper reception. They're listening for his knock on the door. No doubt they had a meal waiting and were ready to say, Welcome home, Master. We're glad you're back. We want to wash your feet. Jesus is saying that's how his disciples are to wait for him. In fact, he commands such as a model. Not a passive or lethargic wait, but one filled with active service, continual preparation, joyous anticipation. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, said, Readiness for the return of Christ implies nothing that is impossible or unattainable. It requires no angelic perfection. It requires no man to forsake his family and retire into solitude. It simply requires nothing more than a life of repentance and faith and holiness. When Jesus told his disciples to be on the alert, he's not telling them to look for signs. That's not the way to be prepared. No, to be alert, to be watchful, is to live a sanctified kingdom-centered, purposeful, holy life, to be awake. But I want to point out why, as Peter puts pen to parchment, these words are oh so painful for him to write. Look at your text carefully. When Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, to be watchful in your prayers, Peter is deeply distressed as he thinks about that incident. 
The subject of watchful prayer or lack thereof was one of the great failings of Peter during his training as an apostle. You'd think after spending three and a half years with Jesus, Peter would be at the, his zenith. He'd be a mature, serious man. And so the night before Jesus went to the cross, we're told in Matthew 26, Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. But Jesus chose three men specifically, James and John and Peter. And we're told there in the text that Jesus then, as they were near him and the other disciples were over there in the garden, that Jesus began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed. So he turned and said to James and John and Peter, my soul is now exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Do you hear the imperative? It's the exact same imperative that Peter now gives to you. Watch with me. And we're told that Jesus then went a few steps beyond even Peter and James and John and fell on his face praying. Then we're told that he turned and came back to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter. He issues a personal rebuke to Peter that night, just minutes before his address. And Jesus says these words. What? Could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? Peter, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The second time he went away and prayed, the exact same thing. So if you want to know why Peter emphasizes, look at verse 7. If you want to know why Peter emphasizes watchful prayer, it's because this was one of his two great failings on that night. The other, of course, being his triple denial of Jesus. But this is his other great personal failing. And the subject of a rebuke from Jesus. He cannot watch and pray because of spiritual and physical laziness. This is our challenge. To watch and pray. To be serious. Because the end of all things is at hand. How do we apply this word to us? First of all, if the end of the world is at hand, and these words were stated 1960 years ago. By the way, get, let me give you a tiny bit of a timetable. It's Peter who will tell us of the Lord's timing. That a day to the Lord is like a thousand years with us. So it's been a couple of days since those words were stated. How will the world end? Well, let me point something out. This is where so many Christians completely deny their biblical framework. They will slip into saying, well, I think the end of the world is coming through plagues or pandemics. No, the end of the world is coming through nuclear bombing. That was hot in the 70s. No, the end of the world is coming through climate change. That's still hot too. None of those have one shred of truth. None of them. And they are all tied up to a worldview that is completely anti-Christian. Let me tell you how the world will end. By those four component parts that I told you. The return of Christ in glory. The resurrection of the bodies of all who have ever lived, joining them to their souls. The final judgment and the eternal state. Don't fall for an unbiblical paradigm about time and eternity. That is how the end of all things will occur. 
if you're thinking biblically. A second application in Scripture. Those spiritual giants who we've been treated to their lives, prepared for spiritual battles by watchful prayer. Daniel, you'll remember, and his friends prepared for a life or death situation by spending the night before in prayer in Daniel 2. Jesus faced his trials by a life saturated in prayer. Paul gave himself to constant intercession, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 3, knowing that the great men of God watched and prayed for victory in spiritual battles. Do you think you can conquer the world and the flesh and the devil without watching and praying? Do you think you can overcome your spiritual enemies, your threefold spiritual enemies, just by your sparkling personality and good looks? Are you stronger than the apostles and reformers and have no need of watching and praying? My friend, you are self-deluded beyond measure if you think you can withstand the fiery darts of the evil one without being much in prayer. This would be an encouragement to you to plug into one of our prayer meetings. We have four of them, two for ladies, one for men. We actually have five of them, two for ladies, one for men, one just before this service on Sunday mornings and our largest prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We have them at different times and days so that anyone, everyone can plug into one of those. And through the years, we've dug deep into what the Bible teaches about prayer, and then we've turned around and put it into practice. If you're a brand new Christian, you're saying, Carl, I don't know what this watch and pray thing means. I'm completely unfamiliar with prayer. Good. Come, sit, listen, watch, learn this Wednesday night. It's there that immature believers have learned the language of watchful praying, praying biblically, putting off bad habits in prayer and immaturity. It's in the prayer meeting that you can pray with men and women who have walked with God for decades and know how to pray biblically. It's in the prayer meeting that we stretch out and pray for hurting, suffering fellow church members and practice real intercession. It's in the prayer meeting that we pray for the conversion of lost family members and friends. It's in the prayer meeting that we pray for the expansion of the kingdom through our missionaries. Let me make one final application. I would urge some, perhaps many of you, to repent of watchful prayerlessness. When was the last time you watched and prayed? The last time you went into your prayer closet and cried to God to have mercy upon you because you've not been seeking his presence daily. You've not even been asking him to give you your daily bread. And you've certainly not been watching and praying against your three mortal enemies who would have your soul. Perhaps where, where you need to begin your response to this word is by saying, God has given me a command. His clear and repeated command is that I watch and pray with all seriousness. I've been lax and careless, so this day I'm repenting. And from this day forward, I will be known by serious.